Blog Talk Radio. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all.
Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the C. Robert Jones Situation Report. I want to apologize for not hosting a show last night. I uh, had a uh, slight miscommunication with Cool Mike. I was assuming that Cool Mike was going to host a show uh, last night dedicated to uh, uh, the D-Day um, the invasion, and uh, we got our wires crossed a little bit. So one uh, one apologizes for that error. Uh, well, what I want to do tonight is kind of kick off the show with um, with uh, uh, if I wanted America to fail. I mean, I, I don't think you can hear this. I don't think it can be uh, expressed enough about what's happening to our great country in terms of overregulation and the nanny state that America has become, uh, it seems, uh, almost overnight with the presidency, with the uh, ascendancy to the president, to the, to the um, oh, there's too many C's in there, uh, the ascendance to the president, uh, the presidency of the United States by Barack Hussein Obama. Today's date, June 7th, 2012, beautiful Old Town Alexandria is where I am. The United States of America, planet Earth, third planet from the sun. So let's kick it off. If I wanted America to fail, what would I do? If I wanted America to fail, to follow, not lead, to suffer, not prosper, to despair, not dream, I'd start with energy. I'd cut off America's supply of cheap, abundant energy. I couldn't take it by force. So I'd make Americans feel guilty about using the energy that heats their homes, fuels their cars, runs their businesses, and powers their economy. I'd make cheap energy expensive, so that expensive energy would seem cheap. I would empower unelected bureaucrats to all but outlaw America's most abundant sources of energy. After banning its use in America, I'd make it illegal for American companies to ship it overseas. If I wanted America to fail, I'd use their schools to teach one generation of Americans that their factories and their cars will cause a new ice age, and I'd muster a straight face so I could teach the next generation that they're causing global warming. When it's cold out, I call it climate change instead. I'd imply that America's cities and factories could run on wind power and wishes. I'd teach children how to ignore the hypocrisy of condemning logging, mining, and farming while having roofs over their heads heat in their homes and food on their tables. I would never teach children that the free market is the only force in human history to uplift the poor, establish the middle class, and create lasting prosperity. Instead, I demonize prosperity itself so that they will not miss what they will never have. If I wanted America to fail, I would create countless new regulations and seldom cancel old ones. That would be so complicated that only bureaucrats, lawyers, and lobbyists could understand them. At least small businesses with big ideas wouldn't stand a chance. And I would never have to worry about another Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, or Steve Jobs. I would ridicule as flat earthers those who urge them to lower energy costs by increasing supply. And when the evangelists of common sense try to remind people about the laws of supply and demand, I'd enlist the sympathetic media to drown them out. If I wanted America to fail, I would empower unaccountable bureaucracy seated in a distant capital to bully Americans out of their dreams and their property rights. I 
send federal agents to raid guitar factories for using the wrong kind of wood. I'd force homeowners to tear down their own homes built on their own land. I'd make it almost impossible for farmers to farm, miners to mine, loggers to log, and builders to build. Because I don't believe in free markets, I'd invent false ones. I'd devise fictitious products like carbon credits and trade them in imaginary markets. I convinced people that this would create jobs and be good for the economy. If I wanted America to fail, for every concern I'd invent a crisis, and for every crisis I'd invent a cause, like shutting down entire industries and killing tens of thousands of jobs in the name of saving spotted owls. And when everyone learned the stunning irony that the owls were victims of their larger cousins and not people, it would already be decades too late. If I wanted America to fail, I'd make it easier to stop commerce than to start it, easier to kill jobs than create them, more fashionable to resent success than to seek it. When industries seek to create jobs, I'd file lawsuits to stop them, and then I'd make taxpayers pay for my lawyers. If I wanted America to fail, I would transform the environmental agenda from a document of conservation to an economic suicide pact. I would concede entire industries to our economic rivals by imposing regulations that cost trillions. I would celebrate those who preach environmental austerity in public while indulging a lavish lifestyle of private. I convince Americans that Europe has it right and that America has it wrong. If I wanted America to fail, I would prey on the goodness and the decency of ordinary Americans. I would only need to convince that all of this is for the greater good. If I wanted America to fail, I, I suppose I wouldn't change things. And we're back. And welcome back. My father used to say that perception is reality. That you are what people think you are. And all you need to to do is to convince them that you are what you say you are. And you are what they think you are. There's a there's a heretical relationship implied here. Reality. Human perception of reality. Human action based on reality. Now, what we need to do here is establish the basis of reality. But before we do that, we're going to take just one more short break. Because I need to to gather myself, if you will. And then we'll kick this off. And Feel free to call in if you like. The call-in number is 347 884 8500. And of course, I'm your host, 
Dr. C. Robert Jones. So bear with me here, and, uh, you know, we'll get into it. The uh, perception of reality. Reality. You are what people think you are. We'll be right back. Robert Jones situation report reality human perception of reality human action based on reality and as I began with the statement that there is a heretical relationship implied let's take it step by step first there's reality or existence if you insist the study of the nature of existence is called metaphysics. Next is our knowledge of reality through the mind and the senses, which, while they may be imperfect sources of information at times, we must strive to optimize their function as if our lives depended upon them, which they do. The study of knowledge and how we know about reality is called epistemology. And finally, the last link in the chain is the actions that we choose to take based on our knowledge of what is real. The last part is where ethics or moral code comes into play. It's impossible to make choices without knowledge. It's impossible to have knowledge if you cannot or will not face reality. The logic of the fantasy left is, well, I've always thought, if rather fascinating, that they insist on calling themselves the reality-based community, as if the words make it so, goes like this. No reality, human emotion, human actions based on whim. Remember the Nike commercials of old? 
Just do it. Just do it. Or do what you feel. Oftentimes, you, you we will debate liberals, and they will speak about how they feel, what they feel. How many times have you had a discussion with a liberal friend and they said, well, I feel this way, or I feel like this? Reality is messy indeed for liberals. It needs to be eliminated, either through deception, delusion, or denial. The deceivers and the liars know exactly what they're doing since they do it consciously and deliberately. We see this every day with the mainstream media. The deluded deniers. They don't want to know what they're doing because they feel better that way. Lazak Kalawaski, a Polish, Polish uh, philosopher, expelled from the Communist Party in 1968 for his heretical views, makes the following keen observation about the morality of socialism from the book My Correct Views on Everything, reviewed in the Weekly Standard. He goes on to say that, or rather write, that socialism is as a social or moral philosophy was based on the ideal, the ideal of human brotherhood, which can never be implemented by institutional means. There has never been, and there never will be, an institutional means of making people brothers. Fraternity under compulsion is the most malignant idea devised in modern times. It is the perfect path to totalitarian tyranny. Now, the social engineers of the left, motivated as they are by their creative utopian aspirations, expressed by the desire to impose, forcibly if necessary, universal peace, social justice, and brotherhood upon humanity. They are completely oblivious to the malignant, extremely immoral side of their own natures. This is what enables them to masquerade as humanitarians personify high-mindedness, and make a mockery of any sort of decency. Any sort of decency such as marriage being defined between a man and a woman. Or that a baby who is aborted through late-term abortion not have every means taken, every means available, implemented to keep that child alive as opposed to being placed in a storeroom and left to die. Decency. Decency has, in our world, become 
politically incorrect. Now, the left's anti-individualism, anti-capitalistic, anti-wealth, and fundamentally anti-human and anti-life agenda is made possible only if they're able to disconnect reality from the human mind and form human actions. The postmodern political left is constitutionally unable to appreciate it. But both they and the greedy capitalist, entrepreneurs such as myself, of the right, who they sidestep so vehemently, are driven by the same dark human emotions, envy, greed, and the need to dominate others. However, when you think about it, there's an extremely crucial difference. And that is the do-gooder leftists in all the various ideological incarnations, the anti-war crowd, the environmentalist crowd, the communist, socialist, and assorted collectivists, and utopians each offer the rationale that he does not. Well, that he does what he does for the common good and for the social justice, peace, and brotherhood of all mankind. His high-minded, self-righteous rhetoric justifies, to him anyway, imposing his will and beliefs on others for their own good. And he'll not hesitate to use whatever cohesive capability he has at hand to get others to do what he wants and what he says. Now, the evil capitalist, on the other hand, is overtly out to pursue his own selfish profit and understands he must use persuasion. And that is, he must convince people that his ideas and the products of his mind are better than all the rest so that he will be willing to part with his hard-earned money to possess them. His desire for power over others is manifested in the indirect manner because people must want what he has to offer and believe that they will benefit from an interaction with him. Folks, there's no parallel social limitations on the behavior of the do-gooder leftist. This tyrant wannabe does not feel the need to convince others of the veracity or even the effectiveness of his ideas, nor does he accept defeat when others are not interested or resist their implementation. He knows in his heart that well, he knows what is best for everyone. For example, uh, Mr. Bloomberg, Mayor Bloomberg of New York, he wants to force us to understand that putting too much Coca-Cola or Pepsi in our bodies is bad for us. 
and therefore he will impose sanctions or limitations or play a bit of a mind game by stating that, well, you can buy a 40 ounce of Coca-Cola, but you'll have to buy it in two separate containers. And therefore, we will give you reason to pause and to consider what it is you're putting into your bodies, as if we're incapable of doing that on our own. He will force us, his words, to understand. He will not allow options, nor will he permit others to do what they think is right for themselves. The leftists, I mean, their feelings or concerns are a matter of complete indifference. Only his own matter, and we see this constantly in the liberal media. The leftist desire for power is direct and absolute. Because the leftists know what's best. They know what's best for you. They know what's best for me. They know what's best. Shrimpers in the great state of Louisiana make their money by shrimping. And every once in a while, on average, once a season, perhaps one or two sea turtles are captured in the massive nets used to collect shrimp. Well, the government has decided that each new shrimping endeavor, shrimp boat, will be required to have a catch-all device installed at the cost of thousands of dollars so that an ensnared sea turtle will be able to escape net. But what also escapes the net is at least a half a ton of shrimp so that the shrimper will spend more time shrimping than actually collecting shrimp, if that makes any sense, and thus will eventually go out of business. Now, it has been revealed today that on average... One or two sea turtles over the course of five or six seasons are ensnared. The government, and particularly the left, believe they know what's best for us. Cyber cities in the room. It must be a slow night on Blog Talk Radio. But I'm glad she's here. Doc Jones, can you blame people from wanting you to keep your fine body so we can keep looking at it? Obviously, that was written with tongue firmly implanted in cheek. But I appreciate it nonetheless. I would rather the government stay out of my business, but I, I know... Cyber City believes that too. The clever deceivers of the left 
always manage to hide these darkest motivations. Envy, greed, the desire for power. And they pretend, they pretend that they don't even exist. The left tells himself he does not possess such dark motives, that his motives are pure and uncontaminated by the kind of self-serving goals those of the selfish, money-hungry right pursue. The banal platitudes and silly slogans he chants during his protest marches make him feel oh so good about himself. And experiencing too much knowledge and insight about his inner state, well, that would make him extremely uncomfortable, one would, one would assume. Perhaps even causing him to question some of his basic assumptions about himself or his beliefs. Now, this is a dilemma, a serious dilemma faced by all utopians. Thus, if they do not consciously decide they're going to do evil, or if they're not entirely cynical, they must escape into delusion or denial in order to continue to function. Now, do we not see this every single day? In the mainstream media, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, name one, Jesse Jackson, and anyone on MSNBC and CNN, they, they see themselves as so pure and righteous, so correct and virtuous. How is it possible that their beautiful utopian dreams always turned into such horrible human nightmares across the globe throughout the centuries. How can they possibly explain all the unpleasantness and evil away like they do? Folks, you can count on the true believer to close his eyes not only by his own internal reality, but also by the external reality that proves the uselessness of his beliefs in the real world. And with that, well, we should take a short break and come right back and perhaps take a, a call or two. I have a caller on the line waiting. You're listening to the C. Robert Jones Situation Report, by the way. Yeah. We'll be right back. <laughs> oh, boy. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I don't know. Hmm. You know, well... We'll continue the discussion when we come back. The call-in number is 347 884-8500. When you see around the globe the maldistribution of wealth, the, the desperate plight of millions of people in underdeveloped countries, uh, when you see so few haves and so many have-nots, when you, when you see the greed and the concentration of power within, don't, aren't you ever, did you ever have a moment of doubt about capitalism? 
and whether greed's a good idea to run on. Well, first of all, tell me, is there some society you know that doesn't run on greed? You think Russia doesn't run on greed? You think China doesn't run on greed? What is greed? Of course, none of us are greedy. It's only the other fellow who's greedy. <laughs> this, the world runs on individuals pursuing their separate interests. The great achievements of civilization have not come from government bureaus. Einstein didn't construct his theory under order from a, from a, a bureaucrat. Henry Ford didn't revolutionize the automobile industry that way. In the only cases in which the masses have escaped from the kind of grinding poverty you're talking about, the only cases in recorded history are where they, where they have had capitalism and largely free trade. If you want to know where the masses are worse, worse off, worst off, it's exactly in the kinds of societies that depart from that. So that the record of history is absolutely crystal clear that there is no alternative way so far discovered of improving the lot of the ordinary people that can hold a candle to the productive activities that are unleashed by a free enterprise. But it seems to reward not virtue as much as ability to manipulate the system. And what does reward virtue? You think the uh, communist commissar rewards virtue? You think a Hitler rewards virtue? You think, excuse me, if you'll pardon me, do you think American presidents reward virtue? Do they choose their appointees on the basis of the virtue of the people appointed or on the basis of their political clout? Is it really true that political self-interest is nobler somehow than economic self-interest? You know, I think you're taking a lot of things for granted. And just tell me where in the world you find these angels who are going to organize society for us. Well, I don't even trust you to do that. Why is Ayn Rand's great novel Atlas Shrugged a bestseller today, more than half a century after it was written? It's because our real world today is just like the fictional future that Rand foresaw in Atlas Shrugged. It's a time of crisis and decay, but it's also a world of innovation and achievement. It's a world of heroes and villains, driven by very different philosophies. We wrote I Am John Galt to tell their stories. We look at the heroic innovators who are building our world and show that they're doing it just like the heroes of Ayn Rand's novels. They're using her philosophy of capitalism, reason, objective reality, and self-interest. Who is John Galt? Meet John Allison, the mild-mannered Southerner who created one of America's greatest banking empires. He did it with Ayn Rand's philosophy by getting every one of his tens of thousands of employees to read Atlas Shrugged and live by its code. In the great financial crisis of 2008, his bank was about the only one that didn't need a government bailout. But the government forced Allison to take TARP money anyway. After that, Allison walked away, just like John Galt did. There's so many other Rand heroes in our midst. There's Bill Gates, the genius who built the world's greatest company and the world's greatest personal fortune, only to have his own government call him a criminal for succeeding too much. Isn't he just like Hank Reardon from Atlas Shrugged? And how about Steve Jobs, the brilliant entrepreneur who reinvented computers, movies, music, telephones, just because he thought it was so cool? He's got the same attitude toward life as Howard Rourke from Rand's other great novel, The Fountainhead. Build it, and I don't care if they come. You'll meet some real-life Rand villains in our book, too. The parasites who are trying to destroy the world. 
Remember Wesley Mooch from Atlas Shrugged, the corrupt bureaucrat who destroyed the economy? That's Congressman Barney Frank, who spent years subsidizing Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in the name of altruism. When Fannie and Freddie nearly wrecked the U.S. housing market, what did Frank do? Just like Mooch, he demanded wider powers. And you'll meet Paul Krugman, the rabid partisan pundit who spreads socialism from the pages of the New York Times and thinks nothing of using the power of the press to destroy his political enemies. He's Ellsworth Toohey, the scheming, dwarfish newspaper columnist straight from the pages of the Fountainhead. These are some of the heroes and villains who move our world. So who is John Galt? I am. You can be too. Read our book and find out how. All right, and we're back with the C. Robert Jones Situation Report. Hey, I was speaking to a friend earlier this morning. And uh, my friend believes that the Bible teaches us that we exist on this planet, that he is, or she, if you insist, has given us life, and that we should use our lives, our existence on this planet, in the service of others. That we are given our lives not to so much to better ourselves, to live well, as well as possible, to achieve but to serve other people, to give of others. If we create wealth, our duty as God-fearing Christians, as human beings, is to serve, to make someone else's life better. I explained to her that I believed in Ayn Rand's teachings of objectivism. I explained to her that I believe I was put on this planet, that my mom labored for nine months to create me so that I could be the best person that I can be, so that I can achieve. Punch the, you know, the appropriate tickets, get a good education, live right, prosper. And that by doing so, by living, if you will, for me, as opposed to someone else, ultimately, I benefit everyone. Most people will be, benef will, will be beneficiaries of my living well, as opposed to my not living so well and becoming a burden on all of society. Well, she is diametrically opposed to that way of thinking. Now, here's the rub. My friend is a dentist. And she states that part of the reason she became a dentist was to help other people. So I asked her, how much of your practice is devoted to the incident, incident, damn it. How much of your practice is devoted? How much 
pro bono work do you do to provide to those less fortunate? And do you ever find yourself going out among the homeless to the various homeless shelters and saying, I've got some time. Come on in. Let me look at your teeth. Well, she couldn't answer any of those questions, of course, and I knew she couldn't. I then asked her, if you believe so firmly in the idea that you were put on this planet to serve others and to be of service and to make other people happy, why not devote 90% of your practice for free and only taking that 10% that you may need to support yourself and keep the practice going? All you really need is a roof over your head. You don't need a fancy car. You don't need to have all the really great things you have. Just get yourself a one-room apartment instead of that big fine house you have on the hill in Chesapeake, Virginia. And just devote your time to helping others, a la Mother Teresa. Well, she found this argument to be absurd and Impractical. And so I think you understand where I'm going here. There are those who talk a really good game. The utopians, the leftists, who will tell you that it is right and just for you and me to give up what we have so richly earned, so, 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 so longly sacrificed for. In the defense, in the just way, the God-fearing way, the Jesus way, that for some reason God put us on this planet to help other people, to do for other people. I indicated to her that's nothing short of slavery. I mean, during... The times of slavery, babies were born and looked upon as property. And at some point, they were looked upon as um, potential workers to serve the masters. So that's what we're talking about here tonight. And as for our president, there's an article in the American Thinker by Janice Shaw Corsay. Obama reinvents sacred things for 2012. And it goes on to read, while his record as president makes it abundantly clear that he does not walk on water, the president is still appropriating to himself many of the religious code words and symbols that ensured his victory in 2008. Strangely enough, in many respects, the president is relying on the same themes that worked in 2008. Do you agree? The call-in number is 347-884-8500. In his book, Branding Obama Messiah, Mark Edward Taylor writes about Obama's 
a devotional code, religious-sounding rhetorical themes that permeated Obama's communication during his campaign for the presidency in 2008. And, and Taylor identified the sacred six characteristics, a creation story, sacred words, sacred images, sacred ritual, true believers, and a messianic leader. And that created a public perception that Barack Obama embodied hope and change for the future. That created an image of him as the one. Knowing, knowing that he was an inexperienced candidate, arguably the most inexperienced ever, Mr. Obama's campaign staff in 2008 sought to downplay the importance of experience, even to make it appear undesirable. Thus was born the idea that Obama would be portrayed as a change agent, bringing in fresh new ideas and pushing out the old, stale, outmoded ones. Taylor wrote, and I quote, Obama talked about change. in a way that made Clinton and McCain pay the price for their years of experience, end quote. Obama, well, his ad copy, Change, trumped the experience of his opponents and made them appear to be just a complete, or perhaps just a, a couple of recycled Washington insiders. It, it turned Obama's major liability into an asset. It was brilliant. Obama's advisors admitted to relying on the axiom almost in total. Your strength is your weakness, and your weakness is your strength. Well, perhaps I should have put that in quotes, because that was not an original thought of mine. Mr. Obama's savvy strategist, and I'm having really problems saying certain words today, Obama's savvy strategist, Still screwed it up. For 2008, figured ways to make the Ivy League elitist into your common, ordinary, every man. While inherently vague, evocative rhetoric, the president, what well, the presidential candidate allowed the voters to fill in the blanks. While he promised everything in general, but nothing specific. It didn't suit their purpose to explain the kind of change that was coming. Indeed, it would have spelled disaster to have to elaborate on the changes. To elaborate on the changes that Mr. Obama envisioned, no one on Team Obama, and particularly those who really knew, like for example Valerie Jarrett, wanted to address the specifics of the fundamental transformation Mr. Obama intended to make happen. It was enough to build upon people's anticipation that their hopes, no matter what those hopes were, would finally, finally be realized. As Taylor said, true believers read into the campaign language a meaning that suited them. Candidate Obama, the secular ide ideologue, used uh, sacred words to shape himself into the image of an evangelical leader. We all remember the images of Barack 
Obama riding a donkey down Pennsylvania Avenue wearing Jesus-like garb and a crown of thorns with a halo over his head. How majestic. The one, the Messiah. The radical left, or leftist Saul Alinsky, acolyte told voters what they wanted to hear, convinced them that with Obama they could make progress. Another generality that voters could shape into whatever they wish, their own interpretation. And then as now, Mr. Obama advisors knew that people act on emotion, not logic. I feel. Remember that. I feel. And just do it. Do what you feel. Emotion, not logic. Now, Taylor's book declared that Obama's team excelled in patterning campaign rhetoric after Madison Avenue advertising. Taylor explained advertising works on a primal level. It seeks to connect with deep feeling and raw emotion. Effective ads don't nurture subtle nuance. They, they don't cultivate calculating judgments. Nor do they uh, insinuate understated distinctions. Ads that work, ads that work go right to the gut. And note that such advertisements steer clear of realism and factual depictions. No wonder that even before Barack Obama won the election in 2008, the Associated National Advertisers gave the Obama team their, quote, Masters of Marketing Award. Nothing that the campaign design strategy was comparable, no, well, noting rather, that the campaign's design strategy was comparable in, in sophistication and excellence to the advertising giants like Nike, Nike, and Target. And of course, Team Obama's Piesta Resistance was a campaign of soft sentimentality targeted at the hearts of, of single women everywhere. A key demographic that strategists rightly deemed pivotal, pivotal for Obama victory. Now, Taylor wrote, uh, quote, the average 30-something woman of today is three times as likely to be single as her counterpart in the 70s, end quote. Knowing that the single women demographic is more liberal in its political or politics and its values. The Obama campaign created an Obama image that was the ultimate political aphrodisiac to women voters. Obama's campaign director David Axelrod and Team Obama understanding the impact of the bleak messianic uh, man concession on single women catered to the desire of a single woman to find Mr. Right. They catered a single metrosexual Obama. Sensitive, charming, urbane, cultured, understanding, and cosmopolitan. Who would make a, a perfect virtual partner? 
one enthusiastic Obama supporter quoted in Taylor's book and obviously drinking the champagne Kool-Aid exclaimed, and I quote, Obama is everything we wanted in a president. And he's everything my ex-husband wasn't. End quote. Damn. That was one sick woman. In 2012, the appeal uh, to women has taken a more hard-edged turn. Gone is the soft sentimentality. Instead, we have accusations that the GOP has launched a war on women and an attack on women's health. As in 2008, media elites are carrying the water for the campaign with editorials in the New York Times Opinion editorials by Maureen Dowd and an unending procession of leftist personalities giving political commentary on CNN, on MSNBC, and in high-profile leftist blogs like the Daily Cause and Politico. But the ultimate ploy of 2012, reinvented from 2008, is the overlay of evangelical appeal to win now as then Mr. Obama has to speak the language of evangelicals he has to be able to garner enough evangelical votes to swing the election his way to that end he employs evangelical rhetoric and imagery to an unprecedented degree look at this beautiful day the Lord has made oh I'll give all praise to God Biblical passages, phrases from hymns, and evangelical lingo are peppered throughout the president's speeches, touching our souls and stepping out of the pew. All references that would be soundly denounced coming from a GOP candidate. Since in 2012 Mr. Obama cannot run on his record, he is justifying his most controversial decisions and programs by invoking his faith and twisted or twisting rather, excuse me, biblical references toward his end. Thus Obamacare, which was forced on the public against their will, is wrapped in good Samaritan type rhetoric. The Bible commands us to take care of the poor and the needy. Taxpayer funding for abortion is supposedly about taking care of women's health. Do unto others as you have them do unto you. The president's support of same-sex marriage is based on the biblical commandment to love and the desire for equality. Now, Mr. Obama is also, as Mark Taylor emphasized, Excellent at sermonizing. As in 2008, albeit a lot less successful in 2012, he seeks to rise above the fray, redefine problems, and offer his twisted faith-based solution. Taylor's words from his excellent analysis of the 2008 Obama campaign are just as well, just as applicable today as we get into to the fray of 2012. 
the president has mastered Obama Messiah rhetoric. He has a gift. Of that, there is no doubt. Some might say it's Teflon. But in Obama Messiah's case, it seems more like the wing, <laughs> the wing of a dove. Obama's wings, however, are likely about as strong as those fashioned by Akasus, using wax. The Greek myth illustrates that lies ahead for one who does not comprehend truth and reality, but thinks artificial wings the same as real ones and flies far too high. Think about that. Think about that the next time you hear Obama give a speech with rhetorical rhetoric referencing biblical scriptures and references to the Almighty. Well, folks, I would really like to thank you all for listening to another hour of the C. Robert Jones Situation Report. It's been a great week. Please tune in to my main man, 2020 Radio Network. He has a great show on Blog Talk Radio. G-Ski Rocks. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And, of course, Southern Sense. Blog Talk Radio. And, of course, GGT 183 Primetime. Great show on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, all the conservative shows are great. Fantastic. Hey there. Oh, yeah. Hey there. Well, I want to thank you all for listening tonight. And we have just about 90 seconds. So we are out of here for the night. Have a great evening. God bless you. And God bless the United States of America. Here to relive your time.